Uh, turn in your Bibles, please, to 1 Timothy chapter 2. And the words that I'd like to direct your attention to are going to be particularly verses 1 through 7. 1 Timothy chapter 2, again, verses 1 through 7. First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all. The testimony given at the proper time. For this, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. As a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Please pray with me. Lord, even as we just sung, we want you to speak to us through your word. Spirit, that you would give us clarity, give us insight, give us depth of conviction. So that we would mature, that we'd grow up into Christ-likeness. That we would see things as you see them. That we would love things as you love them and hate the things that you hate. God, that we would be driven to do the things that you would have us do. And especially, especially that we would have your heart of compassion, your heart of mercy, that you have shown to each of us individually, that we'd have that heart for all the lost. Those who persecute us and slander us and hate us, and even those who are in our own family. God, that we would not forget the very real spiritual bondage that has chained their heart. That we might be driven to pray in faith. And that you would use our prayers to break the bonds that bind them. Make us a praying church and use this service. Use this sermon to bring that about. Lord, we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as you know, whenever you t- undertake any project, um, you need to identify what you need to do first, what you, then you need to do second, and third, and so on. And whether you're building a house, whether you're fixing a meal, whether you're trying to fix a tool at Intel, um, whatever project you might be working on, you need to identify what's first, second, and third. Like if you're working on on a tool, like you need to make sure the power's off or else things can get nasty, I assume. True? Okay, right. Mark confirms. Um, The same is true in regard to work in the church. We need to know what we need to do first of all. And after addressing the need to confront false teaching in his letter to Timothy, the first thing Paul addresses, in fact, he says, first of all, the first thing he addresses is the need to pray 
for all men. And that's really the simple outline. You have the exhortation to pray. You have the theological reason behind the exhortation in verses 3 through 4. And then Paul's going to give evidence for that theological reason. Okay, so that's how Paul lays out these, these verses. Let's look, first of all, at the exhortation to pray in verses 1 and 2. Again, he says, First of all, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions, thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men. So again, this, this phrase, first of all, speaks not just to first in a list of things, but actually it, it conveys first in importance. This is to be a high priority. And then Paul then uses multiple words for prayer, just synonyms. He strings these synonyms for prayer along in order to make an emphasis that we need to pray. In other words, he's saying you need to pray, pray, pray. First of all, make sure that your church prays, Timothy. The Ephesians need to pray for all men. And we could examine each of these words for prayer individually, and that would, there would be some good edifying benefit. But um, the significance of listing the synonyms isn't so much in the nuance that each word provides as much as it is to emphasize the point that we just simply need to pray for this. We need to be a praying church. Prayer needs to be a high priority. Now, I think all of us would agree that prayer is important. I think even most unbelievers would probably say that prayer is important to the various God that they might pray to. But notice here that Paul does not simply encourage prayer in general. But he actually is specific about what we should be praying for. Notice he says, for all men. And even more specifically, he makes it clear that we should be praying that all men are saved. This is explicit in verse 4 and 6 and 7. Right? God desires all to be saved. Jesus gave himself as a ransom for all. Paul was appointed as a preacher to all the Gentiles. That's the emphasis. That everyone might be saved. And it's important that we recall this, not just because Paul says it's important, but because we ourselves know how easy it is to forget the main mission of the church. It's easy to fall into thinking that Christianity is about uh, just our own self-improvement. Our own maturity, um, improving our families. It's easy to, to fall into thinking it's about our own emotional health. And these things are all good, but they're not the main mission of the church. Jesus was very specific after he died on the cross, paying the ransom for our sins. He was very clear to his disciples what he wanted them to do. And you know it well, too. He said, go into all the world and preach the gospel, baptizing people and teaching them all that I have commanded you. He commissioned his followers to go spread the message of the perfect salvation that had now been accomplished by him. So that any person, whether they're Jew or Gentile, whether they are a a homosexual or a blasphemer, or a prostitute, anybody, no matter what sins that they've committed, no matter what ethnicity they are, any man or woman who would trust in Christ for salvation 
could have full assurance of their pardon because He had paid the debt. If they'd be willing to trust Him and in His work and repent from their sins, they could be saved forever. And this is specifically why Paul says, therefore we need to pray for kings and for all those in authority. And the context demonstrates that what we're to pray for isn't so much that that those in authority would make wise decisions so that our lives might run more efficiently. It's not just that we would be safer or that we would prosper financially, but that this would allow for gospel advancement where we live and throughout the world. Notice also that Paul says, that we would lead a tranquil and quiet life. And this, this actually clarifies what Paul means by a tranquil and quiet life. He doesn't mean to suggest that the end goal, the telos of the Christian life, is tranquility and peace. Like the goal of Christianity is to be like hobbits living in the shire. That's not what he's suggesting. He's urging us to pray for rulers so that life would allow for gospel advancement. Not just that it would be pleasant and easy for us. Because again, the mission is not for a peaceful life. It's so that all nations might hear. Again, see this again. Verse 1. Pray on behalf of all men, because God desires all to be saved. Verse 4. Jesus gave Himself as a ransom for all. The whole context is about gospel advancement. So we pray for kings and all those in authority so that we might see the gospel go forth more fluidly. And as we've just recently experienced as a nation, those in authority have significant influence on how well the church can function. They can easily shut down churches. They can easily just outlaw evangelism. They can label biblical doctrines as hate speech. And so that would significantly hinder our ability to go reach people. Even in, even now we experience in our workplaces or in schools a limitation, a hindrance to speaking all that we believe. There are risks that we could take. Well, how do you counter those risks? Paul's giving us insight. It's not by throwing a temper tantrum and leading a protest, making threats, not by just joining movement. He says, pray, pray, pray. The greatest influence we can have on our government is prayer. Some of you know that Mary, Queen of Scots, it is said, said that she feared the prayers of John Knox more than all the armies of Europe. She understood the power of prayer. And likewise, Paul tells us to pray for leaders because their decisions are what will enable us to have greater freedom in order to have political protection, to allow the church to continue to grow in godliness and dignity, as he says, so that all might be reached with the gospel. He points out godliness. This is so that we might lead lives of greater godliness. This, too, has gospel advancement at its core. Because when, 
when authorities outlaw vices and they promote virtues, it makes this pursuit of godliness far easier. And obviously when they do the opposite, it makes it harder. Right? When it's legal to, to, to spread filth all over entertainment and the internet, it makes it hard to guard yourself from filth. When it's outlawed, it's easier. It's easier to shine as lights. It's easier to be lights. Likewise, he says, godliness, uh, sorry, dignity. As Christians grow in godliness, they will also grow in respect from those outside who witness their changed lives. And that, that's really the idea behind this word dignity. The Latin word is the word gravitas. Maybe you're familiar with it. It speaks of living a life that is worthy of respect. Worthy of admiration, not envy, but 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 the kind of person you just look up to like there could be a slave that can do, that functions with dignity. You could also have a politician who is dignified even when they're interacting with children. It, it means not behaving like clowns or behaving like children, but having lives that are defined by sobriety, a, a sense of seriousness selflessness and self-control. And I think it's worth us just thinking about this a little bit because I think as I, as I look at Christianity, especially in America, really, I, you could say, you can say throughout the world, I think this has largely been lost because I think, especially in America, a lot of churches function more like glorified youth groups where the aim is just to have fun and to entertain. Preaching is, is like VBS for adults rather than being doctrinally rich and satisfying. In a healthy church, the adults especially should be increasingly defined by a sense of dignity. Church members should be growing in maturity and responsibility and and propriety. They should have good manners, respectful of those who are above them, gentle with those who... I mean, above them, I mean older than them, uh, gentle with those who are younger than them or weaker than them. Rather than just seeking to be popular, seeking to have fun, seeking to be cool. It seems like just being cool is often what is promoted. I mean, what's silliness? I mean, we're not a high school. I don't know, not that we, we ourselves function that way. That's not what I meant to imply. But the church in general is meant to be a place of worship where people grow up into godliness and dignity. And this matters because, I mean, again, remember the context. This matters because it pertains to gospel advancement. The way we live our lives reflects something to unbelievers about who Jesus is. We are His ambassadors. We are the reflection of Christ to a dying world. People learn what our Lord is like through watching us live our lives before them. An anecdote that comes to mind uh, is David Brainerd. When he was seeking to reach uh, a number of the the, uh, Native American tribes in uh, New England and early in our nation's history, he approached an Indian chief and asked if he could have access to uh, preach the gospel amongst his people. And the chief asked, why? Why do you want Indians to become like Christians, seeing that the Christians behave far worse than the Indians do? 
They lie, they steal, they drink worse than the Indians. They, they're the ones that first taught the Indians to be drunk. They steal to the degree that their rulers are obliged to hang them for it. And that it's not even enough to deter others from the practice. He goes on to say, but none of the Indians were ever hanged for stealing. And yet, they don't steal even half so much. We will not consent, therefore, to become Christians, lest we should be as bad as they. We will live as our fathers lived and go where our fathers are when we die. Now, obviously, if this is the way Christians are behaving, they really weren't Christians, right? We know that. But this, the point's the same. People measure what Christ is like based upon how we behave. And this is why in Romans 2, Paul rebukes the hypocrites in Rome saying, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. It's also why in 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul tells slaves to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. Yes, he's talking to slaves. Yes, he's talking to, about slave masters. He says they are worthy of all honor and demonstrate that so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. And this is why he tells Titus that wives are to be self-controlled and pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands. Why? So that the word of God will not be reviled. The connection couldn't be more clear. The way we behave tells unbelievers what Christ is like. This is why we need to seek to live lives of dignity and godliness and why we should pray for leaders to help create structures in our lives so that we can, because we want unbelievers to be saved. That's the flow of thought in what Paul's saying here. And so then Paul presents the theological reason for why we should pray. This is what we should pray for. But then he says, this is why we should pray, namely, that God wants all people to be saved. Look at verse three. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. I think it's interesting that the reason that he gives, the theological reason he gives is actually rooted in the affections of God. I love that. He gets right to God's heart. Paul calls such language good and acceptable. This is court language. The, word, uh, the words convey bringing a petition before a judge or before a king, wanting, a, wanting it to be granted. This is the sort of petition, Paul says, that will receive a definitive yes. When you ask for this, your father will answer yes. It's good and acceptable. Mailboxes used to be filled with uh, advertisements that we would call junk mail. Uh, today we get email boxes of junk. And the aim of junk mail, as you know, is just to draw attention to the advertisement so that um, uh, people would look at what be, is being advertised, like a fish and a lure. And businesses could spend millions of dollars upon advertising 
and those advertisements may never get noticed. And likewise, you could spend hours praying, but how would you know if God would even hear your prayers or take notice of those prayers? Paul is saying here that not only does God hear our prayers for the lost, but his answer is going to be a definitive yes. He wants to answer yes to such requests. And I'm not making this up. Look at Look at exactly what it says. The reason we can know that God will answer such prayer is because he wants to. He desires all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Notice the connection. Pray for all men because God wants all men to be saved. Of course, the major question that asserts itself in this is, okay, if, if God desires all men to be saved, then why aren't all men saved? Well, God desires many things that don't actually come to pass. God desired Adam and Eve to obey him when he told them not to eat of the tree in the garden. But they disobeyed. God desires all of us to obey him. But we don't frequently bringing destruction into our own lives. God does not want sin and death and all the horrible things that take place in this world, but he does allow them in his sovereignty. But the Bible is very clear that God's desire is that all men would be saved. Isaiah 45, 22, turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. His point is there's no other God that you can turn to. There's salvation down in no one else. Turn to me, all of the ends of the earth. Ezekiel 18.32, he says, I have no pleasure in the death of anyone. So turn and live. 2 Peter 3.9, we read this earlier. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promises, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Why? Why is God so patient? Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God desires all men to be saved. However, we know not everyone will be. And yet, nevertheless, knowing that this is what God wants, gives us assurance that when we pray for the salvation of men, we are praying the will of God. You know that, that God desires, not just desires, God does work through means. He works through means. When it comes to evangelism, He works through the means of sharing the gospel, proclaiming the word. He also works through the means of prayer. Right? This is why we send out missionaries to go to unreached people groups. They go because they know with certainty that God desires to save people from every uh, language and tribe and nation. They go because they know the Lamb has paid the price for their salvation and He will receive the reward for His sufferings. They go with absolute confidence that God will work through them. They don't know how long it will take. They don't know precisely who will listen. 
who will be saved, but they do know that God has, in eternity past, elected some from every tribe, and He will save some. And so they know because He works through means, they go, they leave family, they leave comforts, they leave um, maybe wealth behind. They leave their jobs. They leave everything because they know God works through means. Likewise, God also works through the means of prayer. And that's the point here. The point here is not so much go, all of you, and preach the gospel, though a good thing to do. Paul's emphasis here is pray. If you want to see the lost saved, you need to pray. First of all, I urge you to pray for all men. Pray, pray, pray. We need to pray. And why do we need to pray? Because God wants to save them. We have every reason to believe that God wants to save the people that we're praying for. Maybe the very reason you have this burden for this person is because God wants you to pray for them so that He can use the means of your prayer Just like he uses the preaching of missionaries. He wants to use that means to reach them. But maybe the very reason they're not reached yet is because you're not praying. Or because you stopped praying. Because you prayed maybe every day of your life and you didn't see any sort of change. You didn't see any sort of impact. And so you stopped. Jesus addresses this. Jesus addresses this in Luke 18. He told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the righteous, the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Yes, Jesus said that. And he tells the truth. I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find such faith? I mean, the point couldn't be more clear. We need to keep praying, believing, right? Will he find such faith? Will he find people who believe that God works through means, not just the means of preaching, not just through the means of serving, but he works through the means of prayer? Brothers and sisters, if we believe that, we need to be defined by prayer and not just general prayer, but defined by prayer for the lost. Why? Because we know with certainty God desires, he wants all men to be saved. And right now, I know you got people in your mind who you love, who are still outside the gospel. Pray for those people. Do not stop praying for them. Believe God wants to save them. If He can save Paul and He can save you, man, just think what God might be doing through your prayers. 
but also think that maybe He has yet to do it because He's waiting on you to pray. He's waiting on us as a church to pray. Which is why, of course, to go back to the beginning, why Paul says, first, Timothy, make sure that you pray as a church for all men. So hearing that God desires to save all men might prompt the question, well, how do we know this? Well, Paul provides two pieces of evidence for us in verses 5 through 7 that prove that God does desire all men to be saved. And therefore, we know he can answer. He will answer our prayers for them. Verse five, for there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all the testimony given at the proper time. And for this, I was appointed a preacher and apostle. Notice the two reasons he gives. Christ Jesus gave himself as a ransom for all, for all. God wants all to be saved. That's why Christ died for all. He gave himself for all. That's how we know he wants to save all. Secondly, Paul himself, though a Pharisee, though a Hebrew, though a Jew, was appointed specifically by God so that the gospel would go to all. Two evidences that God does really desire all people to be saved. In fact, Paul goes out of his way to say, I tell the truth, I'm not lying. I'm not lying. He really wants this. Pray for this, brothers. Pray for this, sisters. Now, verse 5. Man, is a theologically loaded verse. Man, it, it could warrant a, uh, a sermon series in itself. But to, to, at the danger, the risk of losing the forest through the trees, we're just going to glance at it to, to focus on the main point here. The fact that there's only one God underlines the reality that there's only one God that people need to be concerned with. And likewise, there's only through one God that they can be saved. There's only one mediator. It emphasizes he's the only way to be reconciled to this one God. Right? And this is precisely why Christ gave himself. Because there's no other way. There was no other way for anybody to be saved. It's not through Muhammad. It's not through meditation. It's not through whatever silliness any religion comes up with. There is only one way to be saved through before this God. There is only one way to escape hell and wrath. And it's through Jesus Christ. And so he gave himself as a ransom for all because he wants all to be saved. It's interesting. The, the only, this is the only place in Scripture actually where the word ransom occurs. As you know, ransom means a a payment uh, for a slave or for a prisoner. Jesus paid the price of our salvation with His blood. He alone has provided the means of reconciliation. And He gave Himself for all because He knew there was no other way that anyone could be saved. In fact, notice also that word testimony. The testimony given at the proper time. That phrase just serves to emphasize the point 
that this is true. It emphasizes the truthfulness of this claim. Christ's giving of himself as a ransom testifies to the fact that God does desire all people to be saved. It's the proof of it. And this testimony, this evidence, Paul says, was provided at precisely the right time in history. Probably uh, brings your mind to Ephesians. So thankful that Chris preached through Ephesians a couple weeks ago because this totally ties in. Again, the same church body that Paul is writing to with Timothy. Ephesians 1, 9 and 10. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and on earth. And then as Chris pointed out in chapter three, where he gets to his kind of main point, he says to me, though I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles, meaning all the other people, not just the Jews, but everyone the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Right? So now that the ransom has finally been paid, Jesus has died, Jesus has been buried, Jesus has risen from the dead. Now that it's been accomplished, all that remains for all these nations to return to God, all that remains is for for them to hear the gospel. And for us to pray that God might save them. And this leads to the second piece of evidence that God desires all men to be saved. God sent Paul out precisely for this reason. For this, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. The word uh, preacher there is kerux, means a, a herald. A messenger, uh, but not just somebody who, who, who delivers a message, but has a message with authority, <clears throat> like somebody representing an emperor or a king. <clears throat> Kenneth West says the imperial herald would enter a town in behalf of the emperor and make a public proclamation of the message which his sovereign ordered him to give and doing so with such formality, gravity and authority as must be heeded. He gave the people exactly what the emperor bade him, nothing more, nothing less. He heralded the message of the emperor. And likewise, the fact that Paul reiterates that he's telling the truth doubly emphasizes the fact that he was called for this purpose. He was appointed to reach the nations, to reach all men. Despite his background as a Pharisee who began, at least our introduction to him, as a persecutor of the church. God chose him. The chief of sinners, he says in chapter 1, to reach sinful nations. In fact, in Acts 9, Ananias, who was the first Christian to meet Saul after he was blinded by Christ in his journey to Damascus where he was seeking to imprison Christians, the Lord speaks to Ananias directly and he says about Paul, or Saul who became Paul, that he was a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. God chose him precisely for this purpose, to spread the gospel. 
And I think it's interesting that even though Paul was specifically appointed to preach to the Gentiles, to, to be an evangelist, to go into all the world, even though that was his particular task that he was given, I think it's interesting that Paul doesn't there then turn and, and exhort the uh, Ephesians or Timothy himself to go do evangelism. Instead, he just tells them to pray for the lost. And I certainly believe he would want them to take efforts at evangelism. Later on in 2 Timothy, he encourages Timothy to do the work of an evangelist. But rather than telling him to do evangelism, what he emphatically exhorts them to do is to pray. And I think that's partly because not all of us are necessarily gifted that way. Not all of us have the opportunity. And I think God does raise up evangelists. He raises up missionaries. That's why we're sending out the Deans. They should be departing shortly for Great Britain and why we support the Burns and the Farmers and the Layers and, and uh, I'm, uh, the McLeans. I'm probably forgetting one. We send them out because God is... That's their heart. That's their burden. And, we, and, and, and they, the church can use that. But the expectation is that everybody else, and including them, needs to be in prayer for them. That's what we're called to do. And so if we're not praying for our missionaries, if we're not praying for our unbelieving friends and family, if, we're, if, if evangelism for the lost is not a primary central part of our time in prayer as a church and as individuals, we are being unfaithful. We're being irresponsible. And so it's something we need to just always keep on the forefront. We can't lose sight of the mission. And this is the point. Prayer is effective. It works. It works. And this is why Paul makes it his first exhortation to the church. Again, we need to remember that our primary purpose here is not to get a new building. It's not to have more people in our church. It's not even just for us individually to grow in Christ-likeness. Those are all good things. But our primary purpose is to see the gospel advanced and the church established in the world. That is the point of our campaign. That is the good fight. In World War II, when our troops took the beaches in Normandy, they didn't stop there after taking the beach and put up a wall and uh, then just have a clam bake there on the beach. Little beach party. After they took the beach, they kept on advancing all the way into Berlin. Why? Because they didn't forget while they were there. They kept the mission in mind. And they knew what the mission was. The mission was to take down the Nazi state. And what Paul is telling us here is the primary way, emphasize that, the primary, primary way our mission is advanced, the primary way we fight the good fight, as far as the gospel is concerned, is through prayer. We need to pray. It's, we don't fight through guns and bullets, but through prayer. And we need to regularly pray as a church and as individuals and as families for gospel advancement. 
So men, how are you doing with this? How are your families doing with praying for the lost, for missionaries? And I call out the men in particular because they're the ones who are appointed to lead their families. But I also do so because Paul will directly address men in the very next verse, verse 8, as needing to pray everywhere, in every place. So this is a burden particularly for men. God calls men to, to pray, but not just to pray, but He calls us to evangelistic prayer. And I think one of the best examples of this, and I've mentioned this before, is John Payton's father. John Payton, you know, was the missionary to the cannibals. He grew up wanting to be a missionary, though in Scotland. He grew up in cold Scotland, but he, uh, he wanted to be a missionary to uh, the to, the countries of Asia. And he did so because he, of regularly hearing his father, who probably had no access to any resources about what life was like in other parts of the world. But his father regularly prayed for the lost. He says this in his autobiography. How much my father's prayers at this time impressed me, I can never explain. Nor could any stranger understand when on his knees and all of us kneeling around him in family worship, he poured out his soul with tears for the conversion of the heathen to the service of Jesus. And for every personal and domestic need, we all felt as if in the presence of the living Savior and learned to know and love him as our divine friend. As we arose from our knees, I used to look at the light on my father's face and wish I were like him in spirit, hoping that in answer to his prayers, I love this, hoping that in answer to his prayers, I might be privileged and prepared to carry the blessed gospel to some portion of the heathen world. And he did. And a a people who had never had any access to the gospel, who used to eat one another were saved because of his father's prayers. Brothers and sisters, you might not be able to go to China or to Saudi Arabia or to Ethiopia, but you can pray. And we need to pray. John Elliott was another great missionary who understood the power of prayer. He, he was... I believe the first American missionary, a Puritan, came over when, when, we, when it, our nation just began to get settled. And he wanted to reach the natives for Christ. And so he, he began to study the Algonquin language. Some of the words were like 22 characters long. And he actually translated the Bible into uh, Algonquin. But he didn't just stop there. He wasn't just a Bible translator. In fact, he was, was also a pastor at, at a local church. But he always kept the advancement to every people group. Like that people group might have just been five miles down the road, but they were a people group in need of the gospel. So he ministered to his church, but he made sure he was doing everything he could to reach them. And not only did he translate the Bible, but he prayed. And actually with support from the government, Elliot established 14 praying towns. That's what they called them. 
where there was housing and work and clothing that was provided for the Indians. And at the end of his life, there was an estimated 4,000 praying Indians in these locations. And in later years, there was as many as 24 evangelists among them. And it was just a vivid testimony of Eliot's creed. He said, prayer and pains through faith in Christ Jesus will accomplish anything. Prayer and pains through faith in Christ Jesus will accomplish anything. He got that from the Word of God. Let's pray. God, we, we turn now to prayer not just because that's what we do after hearing a message, but to do two things. First of all, to confess that we do not pray as we should. And Lord, I, as a leader in this church, am first to acknowledge that I have not prioritized prayer for the lost as I should. Nor have I led my family well in this. But I pray that there would be a remarked change from this day forward. That we as individuals and as families in a church would be dedicated, devoted to praying for gospel advancement here and throughout the world. We pray that You would give us such grace so that we might see more and more people come to know You. Especially those from unreached people groups. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.